inside the caucus, there, there was a group that uh, met regularly and uh, was very much at odds with what, it, uh, what the, the direction of, of the Dexter government during those years. And there was discussion amongst those people about the possibility of crossing the floor and sitting as independents. You're listening to the Offscript Podcast, and my name is Mark Coffin, and I'm your host. Last week, we shared the first half of a discussion, Springtide, the organization that produces the Offscript Podcast, hosted in 2015. We held an event called BookPub, where we invited Howard Epstein and Graham Steele, two former NDP MLAs, to have a conversation at the company house in Halifax. Each of them have written very different books about their experience in politics and the NDP government they were a part of. And at this event, BookPub, Uh, We invited them to face off against one another alongside moderator and former NDP communications staffer Barbara Modi. If you didn't listen to last week's episode, I highly suggest you go back and take a listen to it. You'll enjoy this episode much more if you do. In this episode, you hear Howard and Graham take questions from Barbara, the moderator, the audience, and challenge one another on the claims they made in their books. Here it is. This whole concept of a lack of progressive platform, I've got to ask you, bottom line, would there have been an NDP government at all if there had been a, a stricter uh, loyalty to traditional progressive policies? Uh, Barbara, I don't, I don't believe that would have been the case, but at the same time, I know that Howard would not agree with me on that, and you know what? That's perfectly okay. In fact, this room, I think, would divide on the answer to that question. Look, when when the NDP was the traditional NDP, uh, the core vote, the rock-solid core vote, was about 15%, right? And for for decades, the the highest number of seats we ever got was was four seats. And then we got a more centrist, a more, to use a much abused word, a more small-c conservative leader, and I'm talking not about Daryl Dexter, but I'm talking about Robert Chisholm, and, and then there was a whole lot of context around why it was that the, in the 1998 election we exploded from four seats to 19 seats. That's when the movement started going. I don't believe that you get from 15% of the vote to 45% of the vote just by doing the same thing that you've always done. I, I just don't believe that. Now, there's lots of people who do believe that. I just happen not to be one of them. Perhaps we went too far. Maybe, I, I, I won't even say perhaps, we did go too far. We were in opposition for so long that we shaved off all the pointy ends, all the sharp edges that make New Democrats who they are, right? And, and so that by the time we got elected, we did not have an identifiably NDP program. I believe that. I accept that. But at the same time, I totally understand why Daryl wanted to build with the team. It wasn't just Daryl Dexter. He wanted to build a bigger tent. But Howard's book, you know, I, I like to tease Howard, but, but you know, there's um, th- one of the things that really bugs me about Howard's book is that throughout it is this idea of the NDP purity test. That, that if, if you don't agree with Howard, it just means you're not a good enough New Democrat. And Howard kind of shades this by talking, the, the phrase he uses is traditional New Democrats. And uh, what was the other phrase that I wrote down? Um, adhering to our values. Okay, it's like Howard's got a test about whether you're a real New Democrat or not, and he'll administer it to you on the way out the door if you want. <laughs> But, it, no, it's, but it's, in, it's in the book, and he's got a list of questions. And he takes somebody like Daryl Dexter, 
who is a good man, a sincere man, who devoted most of his adult life to building this party and decides that he's not a real New Democrat. First NDP premier in all of Eastern Canada, um, worked his guts out to elect New Democrats, formed the government, and he doesn't pass the purity test. Neither do I. Neither does Maureen McDonald. It's just, so it's, it's, all, it's like, I just, I can't believe Barbara fundamentally in a party that applies a purity test to people and says, unless you answer these questions correctly, you're not one of us. Okay. All right. So, a, a smattering of applause. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's, it's really hard for me as a professor to not throw my two cents worth in here, but I can do it. All right. <laughs> now, Howard, Graham, you talk about, you know, policy and ideals and consistency. And Graham's book, which he rightly described as being focused on the rules of the game, if, I mean, really, we're talking about a government that lost its chance, right? We're talking about a government that was voted out. I mean, that is a reality that I think we need to, a c important context here. But Graham essentially blames, if we're gonna use that word, the rules of the game, the political culture. Do you think that there is that kind of a culture in Nova Scotia? And how, how do you view the power of the rules of the game? Um, okay, so I want to say something nice about Graham's book. Um, um, so in psychology, there is uh, a concept uh, known as the idea of signal and the idea of noise. Signal, of course, is what you want to focus on, and noise is all the distractions that are out there. And this is a concept that has a lot of uh, application in psychology, but it also has application in politics. And we've, we've heard from Graham, actually, uh, what is, in essence, an, an admission from him that he got caught up in all the noise, and that a lot of people do get caught up in all the noise, and they forget about the signal. They forget to keep their eyes on the ball. And this is very easy to do in politics. Um, uh, it's easy to do in our lives from day to day, uh, no matter what you're, you're on about. Uh, it's easy to do in just about anything. But in politics, there's always something happening. There's always an issue of some kind. There's the process. There's the details of it. If you're new, there's the whole uh, matter of learning how government works. There is no shortage of things that are going to be distractions that are the noise. And if you're not focused on the signal, if there isn't uh, someone or a group of people at the core of government who are focused on what it is that the proper agenda ought to be, then in fact what will happen is someone else will set the agenda. And I, uh, what I admire about Graham's book is that he gives a, a very detailed description of what it is to experience the noise of politics. That uh, 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 all, all of the things that come forward, uh, and, and he's quite right that there are all these things that are out there that, that can distract you and, and take up almost all your time. Uh, and that, that, in fact, it's easy to, to slip into the idea of following along what it is that seems to be presented to you uh, uh, haphazardly from, from day to day. And that's certainly part of what it is that comes across. My complaint uh, is that, that uh, there was too much of that. And to, to the extent that, that we both identify this, uh, we're certainly on, on the same page. Where we, where we have a different perspective, I think, is uh, Graham seems to end up at the point of saying it's impossible to get anything done. There's nothing but noise. And that uh, it, will, it will inevitably defeat 
people, uh, even people who are well motivated, that there's no way around it, and politics uh, uh, essentially drives everyone towards that uh, that that point of being unable to remember what it is or even accomplish what it is that you want to accomplish, uh, even if you remember it. So uh, that's where we are, uh, I think, on, on that point, Barbara. Graham's book describes politics as being all-consuming but not really, in the end, a positive experience. Where do we go from here? What three... Three things would you do in Nova Scotia right now to improve our democratic process? Over to you. Uh, well, uh, Anne Moynihan, who's here tonight, said that she's read both the books and she thinks every Nova Scotian should read both books. Okay. So, <laughs> so, so, so that, that's, that's a great start. Thank you for that, Anne. Look, I have never said, would never say, will never say to people, politics isn't worth it. Politics is totally worth it. The reason why I didn't just crawl in a hole and hide, the reason I actually wrote the book was... Is this back on? Yeah. So Howard's sitting by the switch over there. Okay, I would never say to people, politics is not worth it. Politics is so worth it. It's so important. And one of the problems we have in Canada is precisely that people are not radicalized enough to get engaged in politics. Look, Canada is a pretty comfortable country for a lot of people. And for them, politics is um, a frill that they may or may not indulge in. It doesn't apply to the people in this room because, look, it's a gorgeous night and you're here. But for, the, for Canadians for whom life is not comfortable and all politicians meet them in the course of our work, they're so busy just trying to survive that they also, for different reasons, are not engaged. So politics so matters. And what distressed me at the end of my 15 years in politics, frankly, was how little I personally had accomplished, how little our government had accomplished. And... So we need a better politics. But where I disagree with Howard, if I could sum it up in one line, is Howard just thinks we needed a different leader and a different approach to the policy issues. And it's, to me, it's like, no, no, no. There's, there's a deeper question, a prior question, which is how it is that we do politics in this country. And the essence of my book, for those of you who are in politics or thinking of going into politics, is that it's an important job and you need to go in with your eyes wide open. There are far too many people who go in with this vague idea, I just want to make a difference. And they get elected and they have no idea, literally no idea what they're doing. And it takes them a year or two or three to figure out how government works. And then they might be defeated in the next election. And, and so the purpose of my book is to say to people, if you're going to go into politics, go in with your eyes wide open. Know what you're going to face. Know the pressures. Know what people are going to tell you to do because it's only if you know it in advance that you can resist it. That's when things are going to change. Okay. All right. Thank you, Graham. Smattering of applause. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You have I have to call for it. I actually have to call for my own applause. <laughs> Didn't you bring your own clocker? Okay, know. well, Howard, this question uh, actually, I think, also refers to my comments about talent at the beginning. You were never a cabinet minister. If you had been a cabinet minister, um, how do you think you could have been able to have affected change? What would you have liked to have done? What is not having had that chance? What 
would you have liked to have taken away? Yeah, okay. So um, the way most governments work, of course, is that the general caucus uh, doesn't get to be the decision uh, uh, body on, on most questions. On most questions, uh, it's the cabinet that uh, gets to uh, debate. And, and even then, in a government, uh, if the uh, uh, premier or prime minister decides that they want to centralize decision-making in their office, that's really where the effective uh, decision-making is going to take place. But there is at least a better chance to participate in the debate if you are uh, uh, involved in cabinet. And so uh, I, my hope would have been that uh, as a, a voice that probably would have had a distinctly different uh, set of perspectives than, than many of, of the other members of cabinet, that I would have had a chance, I think, to, uh, to influence the agenda and, and bring a different perspective uh, to it. And, and I hope kind of uh, uh, in a forum where it might have been effective, uh, remind uh, uh, my colleagues what it is that, that we had traditionally uh, been about. But you never know. I mean, you just never know uh, whether uh, it would have been effective uh, or, or not. Uh, and indeed, uh, uh, I, I could have found myself easily uh, uh, wanting to resign or resigning, as uh, my good friend Graham did, uh, uh, over a matter where he disagreed with his colleagues uh, in, in, in terms of a government decision. That's the option that's open, uh, uh, and in fact, the only option, really, uh, uh, to a cabinet minister uh, who's a dissenter and doesn't want to support publicly a particular decision. Uh, they either support it, or they don't. Uh, that's not necessarily true of, of caucus members, although I, I, a lot of uh, governments, a lot of political parties in Canada now, very unfortunately, uh, uh, try to impose upon caucuses the same kind of cohesion and adherence to the, the prevailing view that, that uh, cabinet has to adhere to as a matter of cabinet solidarity. Uh, I, I regard this as a really hall, as a hallmark of immaturity of political parties, all political parties, not just the NDP, all political parties in Canada. And I compare it with what goes on in the UK or uh, in uh, the U.S. Congress, where, where, say, in Congress, there are, are a whole bunch of Democrats, a whole bunch of Republicans, but inside those parties, everyone knows that there's a wide range of opinions, and the members don't hesitate to stand up and speak publicly uh, in, uh, about issues and that uh, differ from, from their leadership, and no one pees in their pants. Uh, this, this happens. <laughs> this happens. Uh, this is exactly what should happen, and it's a sign of a, of a mature system that is able to, to, to deal with that. Um, uh, for some reason in Canada, it's just not, uh, not what prevails, but it's a great unknown. Your your basic question: Who knows? Yeah. So so Bar Barbara says it's okay if I ask a question. Okay, I mean, look, this is a book pub, right? And if we're not going to stir things up, what's the point of holding this in a pub, right? <laughs> All right. So I, I have a question. I have a question for you, Howard. So Howard, so <laughs> when you get right down to it, um, your in your book, sort of policy issue by policy issue, talk about what we should have done. And, and yet, if you look at our voting records, yours and mine, in the legislature, they're essentially identical. There's one, in, in 12 years, there's one thing that I voted differently. That was a voice vote, and it's not even in the records. Other than that, uh, I think that your voting record and mine are identical. That's not true. Um, so, so no, no. Um, wait, wait, wait now. I, I haven't asked a question yet. Yeah, except, except for the ones where... It, Except for the ones where you slipped out so that you could say to yourself, no, I didn't vote that way, but there's no record of that and the general public didn't know. That's a different issue. Howard, why didn't you resign? 
That's uh, that. In fact, is a really good question, and um, that that makes sense. First, let me just deal with with the facts. I mean, the the one time I did vote against the caucus uh, was when we were still in the opposition, and there was a particular issue uh, uh, on which I really did dissent and 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 spoke against uh, against a bill that uh, the rest of the caucus wanted to support. Um, but there were probably about four or five bills uh, that went through during the time when we were the government where I would not vote in favor of them. Uh, I, I I didn't speak against them uh, publicly, but I, I certainly wouldn't vote in favor of them. I absented myself. Several members of the press who were there knew that I had absented myself and asked me about it, and, and uh, we chatted about it. But uh, this, this didn't end up being me resigning from caucus or uh, and sitting as an independent or standing up and speaking against uh, the, uh, the party. And let's be clear, uh, this was not only me. Um, there, inside the caucus, there there was a group that uh, met regularly and uh, was very much at odds with what it uh, what the the direction of of the Dexter government during those years, and there was discussion amongst those people about the possibility of crossing the floor and sitting as independents. Um, but in the end, the judgment was that this would be counterproductive that uh, given that uh, uh, this was the first NDP government in Eastern Canada, as you said, that uh, 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 it would have been widely seen as so hugely disloyal and so hugely uh, offensive to the accomplishment of getting a government that it probably wouldn't have actually been effective in achieving the objectives that, that uh, the, those uh, MLAs who wanted to see different things uh, were hoping for. And it's not that it wasn't thought about, it certainly was. And in retrospect, you know, maybe, maybe we might have done something different. If five or six MLAs had crossed the floor, there would no longer have been a majority government. Uh, and that would have, uh, would have certainly shaken things up. Um, it would virtually have guaranteed that, uh, that there wouldn't be a continuation of the NDP in, in power, perhaps. Uh, but that might not have been the worst thing, because many of us feel that, that our loyalty wasn't to the individuals, and it wasn't to the party, but to the principles upon which the party was founded. And those principles were meant to support the people who needed those principles uh, advocated for. It might have been the wrong choice, but there it is. Anyway. Okay. All right. Isn't this education? <laughs> now, let's be realistic that bureaucracy, in fact, enacts really uh, so many directions. And you have both had extensive experience dealing with the bureaucracy. And one of the criticisms of the NDP government is in trying to make nice with the conventional politics, they in fact didn't purge. I've heard that a lot. So I've got an interesting question here. To what extent does bureaucracy inhibit a new government from implementing a significant change? I guess it's your mm -hmm. turn, Graham. I would say not, not very much, not nearly as much as people think. And I don't actually agree that there was no purge. It's not terrifically helpful to fire a bunch of people. The Savage government did it when they came in. They got rid of a bunch of deputy ministers. And it ended up hurting them in all kinds of different ways. Uh, when you think about it, though, like deputy by deputy, there was almost a complete turnover in the ranks of the deputies over the course of the, of the, of the, of the Dexter government. We just didn't do it all at once. But let me talk about uh, something that's an issue that some of you may vaguely have heard of recently, the film tax credit. 
Okay, and now, so, so, and, 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 because that kind of sharpens the issue, and, 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 you know, very much in the forefront. So I was a minister of finance. I was... <laughs> <laughs> So I, I was the minister nominally in charge of the administration of the film tax credit. Yeah, they used to get, get really mad at me as well, so, so been there, done that. But in the whole debate around, the current debate around the film tax credit, a lot of blame has been put on the finance bureaucrats. And, and folks, I just don't believe it. I just don't buy it. Because fundamentally, the decisions are made by the elected officials. The civil servants give advice. I never encountered the situation where I felt that I was being snowed by civil servants or they were deliberately not telling me everything because they had an agenda that they were trying to push. A lot of people believe that. I just, I personally never saw it. And that's, that's all I can tell you. And when we start pointing fingers at civil servants, what it does is it takes away from the responsibility of the elected officials that's where the focus should be. Yeah. Although, I, don't, I don't mind adding uh, just a small thing ab about that. Um, uh, someone I grew up with uh, uh, is the late Jane Purvis. And uh, Jane uh, was chief of staff to John Hamm, and then she was minister of education. And, and a, a really smart person who um, moved back and forth between journalism and politics. And one of the things Jane Purvis said, uh, uh, looking back upon the time when the Tories were in government, was she said one of the mistakes we made was not firing the deputy ministers right at the beginning. And I thought that was very good advice. And, and it, this is not the same thing is a purge of the civil service because the position of deputy minister is one in which the, they, they serve at the pleasure of the government and their job is to be the intermediary between the elected officials and, and the rest of the broad civil service. And so it's to be expected, I think, that, that deputy ministers may well be recruited not just for their inherent administrative talents but, but for the, the, uh, their capacity and sympathy with uh, 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 promoting the uh, finding ways to promote the uh, political agenda of, of the government in power. And although there certainly was turnover amongst the deputy ministers during our time, it was far from obvious to me, I have to say, that the people who were put in, in uh, were, were people who really uh, were uh, 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 somehow in, a tune, in tune with, with uh, where the NDP uh, was or, or perhaps even uh, uh, should have been. It was, it, 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 you can argue the toss on that, but, but certainly the idea of the, at, at the deputy minister level, it, it's, it's open. Yeah, I actually agree with that, that there was a question of, of competence but that's a totally different issue. But one last thought, Barbara, if, if, you'll, uh, if you'll humor me. Uh, uh, what, what in my book I call the, the worst decision, the worst political decision that Dexter government made, the Yarmouth Ferry. And I don't, I don't mind saying here in front of all of you, that idea came from the civil service. There is no new Democrat who got elected saying to themselves, let's get rid of the Yarmouth Ferry. We were looking for ideas that came to us from the civil service, but we made the decision. And so all of the fallout, all of the negativity that flowed from that is on us. It's on me. I was in the room. I was one of the people who made that decision. Although the idea came from the civil service, that's their job to bring ideas and analysis. But fundamentally, not just theoretically, we have a system of ministerial responsibility. And that's where the focus needs to be. And so I take full responsibility for everything we decided, and I will not point the finger at the civil service. Okay. All right, Howard, you uh, have done a lot of work on writing about policy in your book, so I have a question here. 
Youth out-migration. Can government affect that? Give me a policy idea that would change that. Yeah. Okay. So um, uh, here's here here here's a, a quick uh, overview of the Canadian economy. Um, and, um, um, so the, 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 one of the main things that you have to know is that the federal government, the federal government, has has control over all the main economic levers. They control banking and interest rates and and uh, trade treaties and transportation and uh, it goes on and on. All and and uh, oil and gas and pipelines. I mean all. All of those things are in the hands of the federal government. Most economic levers are not in the hands of provincial governments. What the provincial governments can do is they can make their provinces good places to live. They, we can invest in education, and we can invest in, in, in uh, protecting the environment, and we can invest in, in uh, workplace health and safety, and we can have a good health care system, and those things... Yeah, childcare, excellent example as well. Those are things that, that provincial governments can have control over and, and, and last on the list might be uh, trying to kind of invest in, in individual companies. When it comes to, to uh, youth migration, I think that, that if there's an attractive place uh, 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 to live, then that will certainly help uh, 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 retain youth. I believe in direct intervention on that in the sense of making uh, uh, your province uh, attractive, but I think as well people should be encouraged to stay here and not, not move away. And if they do move away, to try and induce them to come back. I understand that, of course, people uh, need jobs and work, but at the same time, I, I tend to think that the emphasis should be on encouraging people to start their own jobs and to start uh, to, to, at a time in their life when they can afford to take risks, uh, don't have a mortgage, don't necessarily have children, uh, don't have the kind of, of uh, middle-class burdens that, that, that accrete after a few years, that they can take risks in starting, starting small jobs. Um, uh, with the, as a fellow with two kids who are still... Uh, uh, you know, not off the payroll. Uh, this, this is, this. this uh, uh, I'm, I'm all in favor of, of them starting their own businesses and, and getting, uh, getting on with that. I, I think that's really what it comes down to. It's, it's that that we can make the place attractive and we can encourage people to uh, give them as much education as as uh, they they can they can take in and and then encourage them to start getting on with their own businesses. Actually, I just have to say that my students have more debt than I do, so. Yeah, when I talked about education, I meant affordable education, absolutely. Okay. Graham, I'm going to, do you have anything you want to say on that one? Um, just um, three words, uh, post-secondary education. Yeah. yeah. That's, uh, look, uh, that's what brought me to Nova Scotia. I'm not a native Nova Scotian. I think, I think Nova Scotia came out ahead, right? <laughs> but, Look, when, 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 you look, when, you look at, when you look at the competitive advantage that Nova Scotia have, what do we do better, uh, more and better than anybody else? We have this awesome network of post-secondary institutions, universities, uh, community colleges, and, and other kinds of colleges. That's our advantage. They need to be as strong as possible. But the problem is there is not necessarily agreement about how exactly you make them strong. There's lots of room for debate, but if it was up to me, and it's not, but if it were, I would focus our entire economic development effort on strengthening our post-secondary institutions. Yeah, no, good point. Okay. okay. So, if 
So then people say, okay, Steele, why didn't you do that when you were the Minister of Finance? Okay, that's... Right. Thanks, <laughs> okay, all right. Ele all right, something interesting. Election promises are sometimes made only with winning an election in mind. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> when do you think it's acceptable or even laudable to break an election promise, Howard? Oh. <laughs> um, well, you know, the, the, the point is not to make the promises in the first place, especially not to make the promises that are, that are silly. Um, you know, um, here's, here's a perfect example of a silly promise. Um, uh, I will balance the budget within one year and do so without raising taxes or cutting services. Um, so that's something that it is virtually impossible for anyone to believe on, uh, unless they have stars in their eyes. Uh, I mean, this, this, is, this is nuts. Why would anyone say something like that? But we have a, a, an example uh, in, in the historical record not so long ago in Nova Scotia of someone saying exactly that. Made no sense, made no sense. There, there was just no credibility in something like that. Now, there's a, there's a difference between uh, a promise like that, which was just so outrageous that, that, that someone really, we were lucky in that 2009 election that, that uh, uh, we weren't kind of taken out uh, and, and uh, spanked uh, publicly by uh, the press. Um, I, I know Mr. Gorman is here, but uh, let me say that I only read the Chronicle Herald Mail Star uh, to see who died, not because there's something, there's something, there's something uh, uh, useful in terms of uh, policy criticism uh, there. This, this is... <laughs> He, um, he's right over there, I Howard. I know he is. I know. Um, so um, uh, this 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 is problem. But there are other kinds of promises that that are different. There are promises uh, that say things like, uh, you know, we'll pay attention to the environment, or we will we will pay attention uh, to inequalities in, in in society, and so on. Um, those those things are sometimes more amorphous, and uh, they might mean different things to different people. Um, it's it's hard to say. But but really, you know, uh, in general, uh, governments should follow through on on reasonable promises. There, there's no doubt about it. So I was going to read you another section of my book, but I can't find it. But uh, look, uh, polit political platforms are marketing documents. They have become nothing but marketing documents designed to get you to buy the laundry detergent. And whether, whether it actually makes sense, whether you can actually deliver it on them, for the people writing the platform is actually secondary. Now, it may surprise you. I don't know about you, Howard, but speaking for myself personally, I had zero role, zero input in the 2009 election platform. I was a candidate. That was my job. I'd been the NDP's finance critic for seven years. I had no input because, why is that? Because it is the election team, the campaign team that puts together the election document and it is designed to win votes. There's a great book out there, just uh, less than two years old, Susan Delacourt, Shopping for Votes. Great book looking at the history of this. That's why it happens. And so there's a lot of promises that are made that make no sense. Those are the ones that should be broken because a lot of election promises are stupid. And the worst thing that we could do is insist that people follow through on promises that, that, that are just dumb. 
But the answer, of course, is voters who are not fooled by the marketing. Which is why we get so much voter alienation, of course. Uh, why would there's such a small turnout uh, uh, in elections? Uh, it, it, in, in the 2013 election in Metro, the voter turnout was only 50%. This is, this is a scandalous number. But it, it's not a scandal that adheres to the voters. It's a scandal that adheres to the political class who have failed the voters in terms of, of giving them something interesting to get engaged with. Yeah, but, but you know, but you know what, Howard? I mean, that's, that, that's a good point. But he, here's the thing about the marketers and the people running campaigns. They could not care less how many people vote as long as they get more votes than everybody else. Stephen Harper... Can I say that name in here? Yeah. Uh, Stephen Harper doesn't care if three people vote as long as he gets two of them. Right, and, and, and that's the way elections and campaigns have, have gone. And we all allow it to happen. We all, uh, those of us in a party as candidates, we all allow it to happen. We let the campaign team do whatever they do, but we also let it happen uh, as voters as well. Okay, I have actually a question from QP. Who just and it seems to me, it seems to me to be a bit relevant. These are three things that they gave, worked hard for, gave millions of support, apparently, to the, anyway, cease funding for profit, child care, card-based certification and bargaining associations for health care, all of which they worked for the election on the assumption that the NDP would deliver, and those three things weren't. So either one of you want to pick that one up? Howard? <laughs> Um, okay, um, so uh, you know, the, there have been allegations that made that the NDP government was in the hands of, of labor. Um, my answer to that is, if only, if only the NDP government was was more uh, uh, aligned with with our traditional friends uh, in labor. Uh, unfortunately, where we mostly were aligned was with with big business. There were things that, that, uh, that I admire about unions because they are important social organizations with good ideas, uh, including those that, that uh, uh, were just uh, emerged on, on, the, on that list. Um, and, and it was a failure of our government, I think, not to follow through, to take the, that first one about uh, uh, for-profit daycare. This is, this is something that, that really should have been higher up on the agenda, that is, uh, 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 trimming the extent or eliminating the extent to which there is for-profit daycare and making them non-profits, uh, essentially expanding the numbers of spaces. It's difficult in our province to, to do these things. Many of these things should probably uh, be national programs, and, and we now see that there, there are, uh, there, there's move in, in that direction uh, uh, from our party. Uh, we'll see when we get there. But yes, I, I, I go back to the point, if only we had listened more to, to our traditional friends in labor. Yeah, and one, one of the things that we did do was we passed first contract arbitration, but those, some of you, you know, which to me is like, 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 it's just normal, it's natural, it's something you do barely thinking about it. And there was nothing else that we did that so united all elements of business against us. And they really rattled the chains, not just our chains, but the public chain, and we passed it anyway. Then we were defeated, the new government came in said, and just repealed it, and are we any further ahead? 
than we were, and the answer, of course, is no. And one of the, one of the strategic things that I, I think the Dexter government failed in is that if you're going to make change, it's got to be structural change that the next government can't come in and just undo. Same thing happened in Ontario under the Ray government. And, and, and we didn't do that, and uh, well, I, I won't go down each one of the things in the list, but yeah, we weren't very strategic among the things that we were trying to do together with our labor partners, that's for sure. Okay, all right, I want to just take a more structural question right now. Both of you seem to agree to, uh, that leaders have too much power, that premier's offices have too much power. What kind of policies can you put in place at the party level or the government level to change the game? And what can you do to pull this power away from the Premier's office and put it in the open? Is there any mechanism that can be set up to do that? You know, it's, it's funny, it, 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 there's not a simple answer, because of course you can pass this law or that law and you, you say things like, well, the leader shouldn't be able to sign off on candidates, right? Because that's the ultimate weapon a leader has. If he doesn't like what one of his MLAs is doing, his or her MLAs, and if he doesn't like, like what a potential candidate, what they're all about, then he just doesn't sign their nomination papers and the person's not a candidate. But think what the parties would be like if they didn't have that power. Any group, any single interest group can organize enough. Do you know how many votes it takes to win a nomination in Nova Scotia? Answer, not very many. I won my nomination with roughly 40 votes. Four zero votes. So it doesn't take much for, for a, a single interest group to basically take over the riding association. The leader has to have the power, but of course then the power gets abused and misused. And so you end up with people who would bring a different voice. You, you tell one of the stories. I'm, I'm aware of another story that I didn't tell in my book, but you, you actually name a name. In, well, I'm not going to say right here, right now. Um, uh, yeah, okay, there's one, there's one I'm aware of that I don't talk about in my book, but um, Howard mentions another example where the leader just said to a potential candidate, you can run if you want, I'm not signing your nomination papers. But you see what I mean? It's, it's not simple. If it were simple, it would already be done. And with the focus these days on leaders and with televised debates and televised everything, there's, there's got to be a focus on, on an image, and the image is that of the leader. And there are reasons, really deep, complex reasons, why all the power is concentrated in the premier's office. And the only real answer is for the people around the premier to fight back. Because yeah. when you get elected, like, this, the same thing will happen in any caucus. You can bet that in Alberta that the caucus of 50-some new MLAs is being told, you were elected on Rachel Notley's coattails, so you will do what Rachel Notley and her advisors tell you to do. And that will be drummed into them over and over again. And more or less the same thing happened here with Daryl Dexter, where we're told we were elected because people liked him. And it's, it's not easy. I wish I could say, yeah, just do this, this, and this, and the whole thing will be fixed. But it's not that simple. Um, I, I would agree to a certain extent. Uh, I, 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 I think that uh, probably we could do with some specific laws that would strengthen democracy inside political parties. And uh, some examples that tend to appeal to me uh, 
uh, are things that would allow caucuses to, uh, by secret ballot, elect their own chair or uh, elect who their uh, nominee is going to be for deputy speaker or decide who will chair different committees. The kinds of things that, that are often offered as perks to people and as a way to try to keep them uh, uh, in line or to favor particular people inside, inside the caucus. Um, but ultimately, no matter what set of rules get put in place, uh, the administration of those rules will depend on the goodwill of the people who have to administer them because there, there are always going to be ways for a premier or prime minister to accrete power uh, into, unto themselves and to, to uh, tend to uh, exercise that power uh, in, in ways that, that are not really open uh, at their core, open and democratic and accountable. And, and that's unfortunate, but it's just the way of, of the world no matter what. But I do tend to favor adding to the kinds of rules that, that will apply internally in political parties. Right now, most of the laws that, that apply to, to political parties are, are around funding around financing. And, and of course, that's an important element of openness and accountability. But, but, but for the, the democratic uh, part of making parties uh, 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 better political institutions, I think we're probably ultimately going to have to see uh, some rules put in place, especially if we ever do move, like most of the rest of the world, to having proportional representation, where, where uh, you get a, a multiplicity of parties, and where, where the, list, the list of candidates, uh, 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 again, becomes an a real issue, anyway. Okay, I've got one policy question and a personal question, and then we're done, okay? okay. A personal question. And a question. <laughs> so, sustainability. Boxers. Okay. Boxers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Nova Scotia had a reputation for a very strong commitment to environmental law, economic mm -hmm. law, and, and some sort of sustainable plan. People who voted for the NDP, and that was a majority, um, really were expecting to see more of that, and they didn't. What can people who are committed to that agenda do now to see that it is pursued? Okay, well, I guess that one's for me. All right. Um, so, um, uh, it's for both uh, of you. Well, all right. Okay, well, I'll go first if that's all right. The the um, I, part, one of the reasons I, I went into politics was uh, to pursue an environmental agenda. I, I spent uh, three or four years as the executive director of the Ecology Action Center, and I, I spent lots of time in opposition talking about uh, sustainability issues. The record of the NDP government actually was not terrible on the environment. There there there's a very mixed story there. Uh, we did some very good things. We certainly uh, changed the targets for renewables uh, in electricity which is a good thing to have done. Uh, uh, we uh, acquired more land uh, for, for set-aside. I mean, these were, these were things that were, were quite uh, useful, and there, there are a variety of other, other measures. Yeah. But at the same time, there were things where we, we really failed to engage with, with uh, that very prickly issues in the way that the public, particularly the engaged public, wa uh, wanted to see them dealt with. An example, of course, is aquaculture, where, where uh, we gave money to cook, and, and uh, we... we uh, 
essentially uh, promoted uh, the, the aquaculture industry, in, instead of announcing at the very beginning that, that we were committed to world-class standards and to community consent and so on, and ultimately we set up the, the uh, Doel Leahy uh, uh, report, our study, which, which produced an excellent report on this. And, but, and, but it was and one Wheeler of those, on fracking. Sorry? And Wheeler on fracking. Yeah, and Wheeler on fracking. I mean, there were, there were things that were done, but they, they, were, they were very uh, tricky uh, uh, issues uh, that, that required uh, some close attention, and, and we treated them as, as if they were um, uh, issues that were perhaps best pushed off until after the next election, and, and particularly in the case of aquaculture, there, there, there was just uh, clear support for the industry, which was problematic. Forestry was, was highly problematic. I mean, there, there were things there that, that were very difficult. Um, uh, uh, what, what can people do if they're dissatisfied? Well, given the fact that, that the NDP now, uh, in, and for several years, has had a very comprehensive set of policies on the environment, it's not obvious to me that, that, that uh, the NDP is not the natural home of people who are serious about the environment. Um, we, we, I, I think, in fact, there's much to hope for uh, out of the NDP uh, on, on sustainability uh, issues. There is, of course, a Green Party in Nova Scotia, but it, it, it virtually doesn't exist. And it's not that it might not uh, get some traction at some point, but, but in terms of being a serious uh, political entity, it's, it's just not there. Uh, my, my good friend uh, David Kuhn got elected uh, for the Green Party in Fredericton uh, in the provincial election last year. Uh, I think his executive assistant is, is, is here tonight. Uh, David is doing wonderful work and did wonderful work for years and years at the Conservation Council, but that's not exactly the, the, the province uh, turning itself over to, to the Green Party. That was a personal victory for David Kuhn. Uh, in Nova Scotia, we don't have uh, candidates who are running for the Green Party who have that kind of profile and, and, and history. So at, at this point, as I said, the story for the NDP uh, in Nova Scotia in, in Nova Scotia on, on the environment is mixed, but generally very good, and, and there's, there's a hope for it uh, uh, in the future. I, I know this is going to come as a shock to you, Barbara, but I agree with everything you just said. <laughs> well, that's a happy note to round this up on, but I do have a question, and this is in several people have written this. There's heartbreak in both these books. Both of you thought it was going to turn out better. That's why you wrote the books. So the question... How, how many people in this room thought the Dexter government was going to be better than it was? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So the big question, back to... It's my turn, which is about the future, is would either of you return for a different NDP, for a different leader? Would either of you run for leader? Have you, are you out of the game? Or would you come back in for the right reasons? Okay, well, all right, so I'm retired, and um, uh, you know, my brain looks like a piece of Swiss cheese at this point, so I'm, I'm, I'm not really a, a candidate for, for running for office again, or certainly not for, for leader of the party. Uh, that's not even, you know, but, but my young friend Graham, who's an, example, uh, who's an example of an unemployed youth in Nova Scotia here. Um, uh, um, uh, 
<laughs> clearly, 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 Graham is a talented fella, and and uh, I, I, you know, I hope continues uh, to think seriously about politics. But there are many ways to be involved in politics without being a candidate. And uh, uh, I, I, although I'm not going to, I hope, ever be a candidate again, I'm involved in politics. I'm involved in the party. I'm involved in speaking publicly about uh, policy issues. And I hope to continue to do that so long as I can. Graham speaks, of course, about policy issues. And I, I hope he continues to, to do that. He, he is, seems to have eliminated the possibility of, of involvement in electoral politics for himself in the future. Uh, but who knows, right? Thanks, Howard. Um... <laughs> So here, here's the thing, and I think, I think for those of you in the room who've read my book, you'll understand what I mean when I say that being in politics for 15 years is just, it's exhausting. And I, I don't mean physically exhausting or mentally, although it is, it is both of those things, but there's some part of your soul that just gets exhausted the way politics is done in Canada. I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm not going back. I'm not ever going back. I wrote the book because I thought there was an, a story that needed to be told, but not so I could use it as a trampoline back into politics. That's not going to happen. It's so that you out there can learn from what happened to me and the people that I was associated with, like Howard, learn from the mistakes that we made, save yourself 15 years, right? Because it took me 15 years in, to write what I learned about politics and then get into politics in whatever form that is and do better. So the question is, I think, Barbara, not what I'm going to do, it's what you. What are you going to do? Are we? a smart moderator knows when she's heard the last word. <laughs> so thank you all very much. Vote, fight, work. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Offscript podcast. You've been listening to the recording from an event we held in 2015 called Book Pub, featuring Howard Epstein and Graham Steele. As we shared in an earlier episode, we're taking a break for about a month to work on the next set of standard episodes, the ones that follow the career of the former MLAs of the Nova Scotia legislature. And we'll be coming back in April with a new distribution partner, a new co-host, and a special theme that the next set of episodes will be focused on. More on that in the weeks ahead. 